Matthew chapter 27 and uh, Matthew chapter number 27. Again, thank you for being faithful uh, to the Lord's house this morning <clears throat> and it certainly has been a, a busy week here at our church and about, uh, oh, let's see, 27, 28 of our ladies went to the ladies conference uh, with my wife uh, this uh, Friday, Saturday and got back last night about 8.15 and so I know it's been a uh, a busy week and weekend, but very productive, I, I trust. You know, whenever the Word of God is given, whether it's in this place or whether we go to hear it somewhere else, the Lord expects us to do something with it. Uh, the Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required. And uh, we're very blessed people because we get to hear the Word of God. We get to study it. We get to open uh, We get to have our own copy of it. You know, there's many cultures, many countries around the world where uh, the Bible is a forbidden book. Uh, it, but it's a powerful book, and uh, the fact that you have a copy of it or have access to a copy of it is, uh, really speaks volumes <clears throat> in, in uh, telling us and reminding us of how much God loves us and how, God, how much God cares for us. And so we're going to open the Word of God this morning, Matthew 27. If you'll stand with me, please, we'll read uh, just three verses, starting in verse number 27 of Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. And verse number 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him, and they took the reed and smote him on the head. Those three verses are astonishing when you think about what those soldiers were doing and who they were doing it to. Because the mockery of a king is exactly what was happening in these verses. And that's the title of the message this morning, The Mockery of of a king. Let's pray together. Our Father, I pray that you'd help us in these next few moments. I pray that you'd still our minds and hearts as we consider just a small portion of the incredible agony that our Savior endured so that we might have eternal life, so that we might be saved, so that our sins might be forgiven, so that our names might be written in the Lamb's Book of Life, so that we might enjoy the splendor of heaven for eternity, so that we might have the life that we enjoy here and to have it more abundantly. Father, it came at, a, at an incredible cost to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords because they mocked him and they spat upon him. And the suffering that he endured should have been mine. Father, I pray that you'd remind us of a very important truth this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. In this chapter, we see the Gospel of Matthew's account of the crucifixion of Christ. You see, in the four Gospel uh, narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of those Gospels gives the, the, the life of Christ from a little bit of a different perspective. Matthew has a little different view of things than Mark did, and Mark than Luke, and Luke from John. <coughs> That doesn't mean there's uh, discrepancies. That doesn't mean there are contradictions between the four Gospels. It simply means that there's a different perspective, a different angle. P 
people saw the same event from a different, a different viewpoint, if you will. And all four of the Gospels, obviously, are, uh, are coordinated and authored by the same person because even though Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John penned the words to the Gospels, the Holy Spirit was the author of all four of them. And so there are things that he shows us in different Gospels that we may not see in the other three. And here Matthew is describing or giving the account as inspired by the Holy Spirit of the crucifixion of Christ. We know that Jesus was betrayed by Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane. We talked a little bit about Judas last Sunday and said that he was the ultimate April fool. From there he was taken to, Jesus was taken to Annas and Caiaphas, the chief priests, where he was falsely accused, he was bound, he was beaten, he was interrogated, and he was spit upon. They jerked the beard from his face. They, the Bible uses the word buffet. They, they, they slapped him, they smacked him, they spit upon him, upon him, they derided him, they falsely accused him, they called him a blasphemer. They tried to get people to come in with uh, 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 reports, if you will. And every witness they brought in, (coughs) uh, they were having a hard time finding witnesses whose stories corroborated because they were trying to find something uh, about which they could accuse Jesus and bring him to a point of death. After that, he was taken to Pilate. Pilate was the Roman procurator of that area. Now, uh, Pilate, (coughs) very interesting character. The, uh, he was, uh, uh, the, the word procurator means somebody who was in charge of keeping the peace. Now keep in mind, the whole world at that time was ruled by the Roman Empire, and Caesar was in command of the Roman Empire. And so every region would have these different men. They would call them governors. In some, some cases, they'd call them procurators. And their, 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 their job was more than anything else was to keep the peace. They wanted to make sure that Rome got all the tax money from all these different areas that they occupied. And, uh, and Pilate's job was just to pacify the people, to make them happy, to keep the peace, to make sure that everything was, was flowing smoothly. And uh, as is the history of the Middle East, that's never an, an easy thing to happen in that area of the world. But that was, that was Pilate's job. Pilate, when Jesus was brought to him, he didn't want to deal with Jesus, and so he sent him to Herod. He sent him over to Galilee and, and, uh, and to Herod's uh, uh, palace, and he said, all right, Herod, you deal with him. I don't want to deal with him. And Herod questioned him, and, uh, and, he, uh, and in fact, you read another gospel account where Herod, he simply wanted to see a miracle. He'd heard of all these miracles that Jesus did during his ministry, and he simply wanted to, uh, to toy with him, if you will, to have him do some kind of an uh, incredible thing, a miracle. And uh, when Jesus, did, uh, he, uh, of course, wasn't very talkative and went in the presence of Herod, and so Herod said, I don't have time for this, and so he sent him back to Pilate. Pilate, knowing Jesus had done nothing worthy of death, wanted to release him. He wanted to. Pilate knew that Jesus was an innocent man. Pilate knew that Jesus had done nothing worthy of death according to Roman law. In fact, Pilate's wife came to him after Jesus had, had been sent back, and, he, and she said, look, have nothing to do with this just man. She said, I've suffered many things in a dream because of him. Don't be, be careful about how you deal with Jesus. And by the way, that's a good lesson for all of us. We all better be careful how we deal with Jesus. 
Because what you do with Christ determines your eternal destiny. The custom of that day was to release a prisoner at the time of the Passover. And so Pilate thought he could get out of this jam that he was in by making the choice of who to release between Jesus and a very notorious criminal by the name of Barabbas. Pilate, in his thinking, was, okay, Jesus has done nothing worthy of death. Barabbas is an infamous criminal. Nobody likes Barabbas. Nobody wants to see Barabbas go free because if I release Barabbas, he is a threat to public safety. He's a threat because of the crime and so forth that he's guilty of, and everybody knows that. And, uh, and so that's the way I'll get out of this. I'll present the option of either relieving, uh, releasing Barabbas or releasing Jesus. And certainly, as far as Pilate's thinking was concerned, the people will say, hey, okay, release Jesus, but keep Barabbas in jail because he's public enemy number one. That's what he was thinking. But as you know the story, the religious leaders had convinced the people to ask for the release of Barabbas and demand that Jesus be crucified. So Pilate brings Barabbas on the one hand and Jesus on the other hand. And uh, Pilate says, uh, said to the people, now your custom is that I release to you one, uh, someone uh, during the Passover feast and so forth. Uh, so here's Barabbas and uh, he's public enemy number one. He's guilty of all these crimes. He, uh, you, you know his, his uh, rap sheet, his track record and so forth. Should, should I release to you Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? And you know the story they said about Barabbas, release him, and about Jesus, crucify him. Crucify him. So Pilate, being warned by his wife not to have anything to do with this just man, takes a basin of water, a basin of water, and ceremoniously washes his hands of the innocent blood of Christ. I say ceremoniously because, ladies and gentlemen, what you do with Christ is not ceremonious. It's the real deal. You can't just ceremonial. Look, no one goes to heaven because of ceremony. You don't go to heaven because of, of, of religious rituals. Yeah, your name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life because you were raised in such and such a church, whether it's this church or any other church for that matter. No, what Pilate could, did not understand that day was he was dealing with not just an innocent man, but he was, in it, he was dealing with the innocent God-man. Pilate then commanded for Jesus to be scourged before he was to be crucified. Now, the scourging is an interesting thing. The Roman scourge was many times deadly all by itself, outside of any crucifixion. Many people did not survive this punishment because in many times, in many cases, it would tear the flesh away from the victim's body. In many cases, this Roman, <coughs> this Roman scourge was a death sentence in itself. And that tells you a little bit about the physical stamina of our Savior to endure not only the Roman scourge, but to go on from there and, uh, and to go to Calvary. It tells you about how, 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 uh, uh, how strong he was physically. But this Roman scourge is very interesting. Some people call it, refer to the, the, uh, the tool of it as the cat of nine tails. 
a, uh, a handle made out of uh, wood or metal or whatever and long, long leather straps that proceeded uh, from that handle and interwoven in those straps were sharp pieces of metal or glass or, uh, or, or other sharp objects that would dig into human flesh. And so when the Roman centurion who was in charge of this scourging <coughs> would beat the victim of the Roman scourge, these, these leather straps would wrap themselves around the body of the victim and those sharp objects would dig themselves into the skin and into the, 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 the muscle tissue and the flesh of the victim and then that Roman centurion would rip away <coughs> that, uh, uh, that instrument, that cat of nine tails, that scourge, and in doing so, literally rip chunks of flesh every time it was applied. That's what Jesus endured. Not just once or twice, but dozens of times. Jesus endured, listen to me, Jesus endured the, the, the trauma and the agony and the torture and the pain and the brutality of the Roman scourge, the cat of nine tails, the official charge for his death. Uh, Pilate could not come up with one because no one could give a legitimate reason why Jesus should die. And he said to the people that day, he said, the, he said this is a just man. He said, his blood be upon you. And they said, yeah, yeah bring his blood upon us and upon our children. And then he was scourged before crucified. So these Romans, these legionnaires more than likely, responsible for his execution. The Bible says they platted a crown of thorns and they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. They said, no doubt, oh, king of the Jews, you say. Okay, well, if you're a king, let's give you a crown. And they platted a crown of thorns. Now, not the kind of thorns that you might see on a rose bush somewhere. We're talking about the, the thorns that are popular and very common in that part of the world were, were two and three and four inches long, sharp as a razor. And they platted that crown of thorns and they placed it on his head and they beat it into his, into his, uh, into his scalp area where, where, where those thorn prongs would, would actually dig into next to his skull and, and create great pressure there. And they said any, any king needs a crown, but also a king needs a scepter. What's a king without a crown? What's a king without a scepter? And they took a reed and the Bible says they put it in his right hand and they mocked him. And so here's Jesus with that scarlet robe and a crown of thorns and a reed in his hand. And then these uh, Roman soldiers would get on one knee at some distance from him and they would mockingly bow before the king. Not a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. Not a scepter in his hand, but a reed. And then to bow scornfully and in jest say, Hail, King of the Jews. Can you imagine, imagine the scene? I want to give you several things to consider this morning as we talk about the mockery of a king. Number one, I want you to consider the ignorance. Consider the ignorance of these soldiers. I mean ignorance. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, was the object of scorn at the hands of people who were ignorant of who he really was. Here he is, the creator of the universe. <clears throat> they did not know that the person to whom they were deriding, the person that they were scorning, the person they were mocking, the person who they mockingly uh, referred to as the king of the Jews. By the way, he was the king of the Jews. Not only that, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. 
But the ignorance, consider the ignorance of these men as they bow derisively on one knee and say, Hail, King of the Jews. They didn't realize he was the creator. Colossians chapter 1 says, By him all things consist. Hey, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Verse 3 of John chapter 1, all things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. These Roman soldiers consider the ignorance of these men as they had no idea that this was the Creator of them. The Creator of the universe. God in the flesh. The omnipotent one, the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. The one who made was responsible for the solar system, the one who was responsible for every breath that these people took as they mocked him and as they scorned him. They didn't realize that the breath that they used to scorn and to mock was given to them by the one that they were mocking. The ignorance of them. The ignorance not only that, this morning, I want you to consider not just the ignorance, but consider the audacity. <laughs> consider the audacity of these men who defied him who truly was the king. The audacity of it. Now, <clears throat> Jesus, by the way, looked at these same men a little bit later and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, they don't have a clue what they're doing. They've beaten me and they've done all this. And as Jesus was hanging on on the cross a few hours later, in one of the last seven statements that he made uh, before he would yield up the ghost, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, but consider the audacity of these men to make a mockery of the real king. You see, the Bible tells us over in Philippians chapter 2, it says, one day every knee shall bow. Every knee shall bow. And by the way, when that day comes, Brother Moore, there'll be no ignorance. There'll be no ignorance of who Jesus is at that time. They'll, hey, there'll be no shock. There'll be no, we didn't know. There'll be no, oh, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I just didn't have, have all the facts at the time. No, these same men, these same men who derided him and who mocked him and who, and, and who uh, uh, scorned him. The Bible says, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee, every Roman soldier knee, every dictatorial knee, hey, every atheist knee, every agnostic knee, every murderous knee, every, uh, hey, you, you name it, doesn't matter who it is, no one's going to be absent from bowing the knee and saying, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hey, there was audacity then, but there'll be no audacity in the future. There may have been ignorance then, but there'll be no ignorance in the future because everybody will know exactly who Jesus is and the fact that he truly is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Consider the ignorance. Consider the audacity. Number three, consider the submission. Consider the submission. Can you picture it in your mind's eye? As Jesus stretched out, and beaten with a Roman scourge, 
the blood flowing from his wounds, the flesh that was so mangled. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14, the Bible says this, As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. That is a prophetic statement made by Isaiah hundreds of years before the crucifixion. And he said his visage, his countenance, his appearance was marred more than any man. Wow. That's your Savior. That's your Savior. Think with me. All of this and Calvary was yet before him. This was just the scourging. This wasn't even the Via Della Rosa. This wasn't even the, uh, uh, the, 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 the cross. This wasn't even the nails yet. This was the scourging. And, and consider the mockery. Consider the ignorance. Consider the audacity. Consider the submission. Can you see this morning the crudely made crown of thorns that was plaited and beat into his scalp? Can you see the soldier spit on him in derision and put a reed in his hand and scarlet robe on his back and then mockingly bow before him? What we see is not their ignorance and their audacity, but we also see the Savior's submission because he didn't have to take that. We see the Savior's submission. Ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you this morning, <coughs> Jesus was not killed. He laid down his life willingly. There was no murder involved. This was somebody who said, this is my life, and I lay it down gladly because the Bible says, greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And then Jesus looks at Judas, and his first words to him, according to the book of Matthew, was, friend, Jesus laid down his life for his friends. Who's his friends? Judas was his friend. According to Jesus, me and you are his friends because he laid down his life for us. You see, my friend, we see the submission. We see the scourging. We see <clears throat> the humbling himself. At any moment of the scourging, at any moment of the beating, at any moment of the mockery, at any moment of the crucifixion process, he could have called, the songwriter said, 10,000 angels to destroy the world and to set him free. Hey, I submit to you this morning, he didn't have to call 10,000 angels. He who spoke the worlds into existence, he who said, let there be light, he who, who just at the word of his mouth, everything is at his disposal, he could have just spoken the word and come down off of that cross and destroyed everybody. He didn't have to do what he did, my friend. Instead, we see the Son of God humbling himself and becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, Philippians 2 tells us. Humbling himself and becoming obedient. Look, notice the submission there. He who is omnipresent, he who is all-powerful, he who is omniscient, he knows everything, he knows the thoughts and intents of the heart, he who knew everything about every Roman soldier who was mocking him, he knew everything about them, and yet he humbled himself and submitted himself to the mockery. Never one time did he, did he defend himself. Never one time did he say, you guys are in for it one day. <laughs> Never one time did he say, you have no clue. Never one time did he say to those men who were mocking him, never one time did he make any attempt to lash out at them verbally. Consider the submission. Next, consider the unfairness. Number four, consider the unfairness. 
as the scene of torture unfolds and the scourge leads to the actual crucifixion, there's one fact that we must revisit over and over and over again. As you, as you think about the whole crucifixion story, from the time he was betrayed by Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane until the time he breathed his last breath on the cross and yielded up the ghost, there's something about that whole scenario that we need to remind ourselves of on a regular basis, and that is simply this. The wrong person was being punished. Did you hear me this morning? The wrong person was being punished. Jesus did not deserve to die. We talked about it in Sunday school a little bit. In Romans chapter 5, it goes on and it says that for a good person, some would dare to die. But God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The wrong person was being crucified. Jesus did nothing wrong. He committed no crime. Not only did he never commit a crime, he never committed a sin. <clears throat> not only did he not transgress the law of the Roman government, Jesus never one time transgressed his father's law. He was sinless. He was perfect. He was holy. He was just. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For he hath made him to be sin. Don't miss that. He hath made him to be sin, to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, the one who deserved the beatings and the mockery and the shame and the reproach and the suffering and the agony that day. Who was it? It was me. It was you. It was all of us. What Jesus did on Calvary, the punishment that he endured, the mockery, the shame, the humiliation, everything that goes along with death by crucifixion, we were deserving of it. Not him. Not him. The ultimate act of injustice was what the Son of God endured that day. Hey, be careful when you start talking about your rights. We live in a day and age where everybody wants to talk about rights and nobody wants to talk about responsibilities. Everybody demands, this is my right, these are my civil rights, this is my human rights, my rights, my rights, my rights, my rights. Hey, you want to talk about rights, let's talk about rights. Jesus had no right to die. My rights was to bear the punishment that Jesus took on my behalf. My rights, my friend, is to bear the hell that I, that I should endure for eternity. Hey, those are my rights if I get what's coming to me. Better thank God for his mercy. Better thank God for his mercy. The ultimate act of injustice. Injustice. By the way, the Bible says that God loves justice. Just and right is he, the Bible says. And as much as God loves justice, God was willing to pour out God's justice toward us and the wrath that it meant for us to receive the just rewards of our sin and our deeds. And God poured it out on his only son that day. Can you imagine? We were, he, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. What's just about that, preacher? Not one thing. 
except for the fact that God's justice was satisfied in the injustice that was done to his son on my behalf and on your behalf. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Somebody better shout a while because Jesus took upon him my sins and your sins. That was unjust. Consider the unfairness. Consider the submission. Consider the ignorance. Consider the audacity. Consider the love. Consider the love. What would motivate the Son of God to submit to that kind of treatment? (laughs) There's only one explanation. What would motivate he who is perfect and holy and righteous and just to be treated, to allow himself to be treated in such a barbaric way by ignorant men? Love. For God so loved the world. How much did he love us? You can't really describe it. How much did he love us? He, the Bible says he loved us so much. He so loved the world. So is one of those little words, Brother Dave, where you just kind of put it in there because nothing else really is applicable. Nothing really else fits. Nothing, no other word really does it justice to be able to describe the quantity or the quality of that love. And so the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Consider the love. Do you have any idea how much God loves you? The answer is no. Because none of us do. It's inexplicable. It's unfathomable. How deep the Father's love for us. Oh, we talk about it, and we sing about it, and we teach our kids the wonderful song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, perhaps the greatest song uh, that that I've ever learned in, in my lifetime. But you understand something? We really can't grasp it. Because we can't grasp the depravity of our sins, number one, and we cannot grasp the immensity of, 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 of the holiness of God who would love somebody like us. We really can't grasp that. But this morning I'm asking you to consider, consider what would drive Jesus, what would cause the Father to sacrifice his son, what would cause the son to, to agree to go through the beating and the mockery and the shame and the reproach of Calvary and the reproach of the Roman scourge. What would cause it? There's only one explanation, and it's God's love. God's love. Consider the love. Consider the truth of the matter this morning. We're done. Consider the truth of the matter. God loves me. Jesus died for me. Jesus, who those Roman soldiers mockingly hailed as, hey, there's king of the Jews. The truth of the matter is one day their knee will bow. And not only say, hail, king of the Jews, and they won't be making any fun then, okay? There'll be no jokes about it then. Hey, there'll be, no, there'll be no mockery then. There'll be no fun time then. No, then it'll be not just them, but all of us, everybody who's ever breathed breath. King of kings, Lord of lords. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. You know, I decided a long time ago, I want to get a jump start on that. I don't want to wait till the judgment to get on my knees and say, 
King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, you're Lord. You're not just Lord of everything. You're my Lord. You're not just Lord of creation. You're my Lord. You're not just Lord of, of, uh, of uh, uh, heaven and earth, but let's make it personal this morning. Is our life a mockery to the King of kings? That'd be a shame, wouldn't it? I don't think there's one person in this room this morning who would condone for one second what those Roman soldiers did that day. Not one second. I don't think there's one person under the sound of my voice this morning who would have the ignorance or the audacity either to join in with the Roman soldiers and what they did to our Savior that day in their mockery of him or to condone what they did. But wait a minute. I ask you a simple question this morning. Is he really your king? Is he really your king? Is he really your Lord? Oh, now one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the Bible says, to the glory of God the Father. You know what? <clears throat> Maybe we should get a head start on that. Maybe our lives should be a testimony that Jesus is who he said he was. Maybe my life and your life should be a testimony. Hey, the way we live and the way we conduct ourselves. <clears throat> hey, if you're here this morning and you know the Lord as your Savior, you're, you're, you're saved, you, you know you're saved. Does our life give testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ is our King? Who's the King? He's the one who calls the shots. He's the one who has the authority. He's the one before who we bow. He's the one who makes the rules. He's the one who decides where we go and how we live and, and how we behave ourselves and, and how we conduct ourselves and, and how we treat others. Hey, he's the one who calls all those shots. Hey, yes, he's the king of the Jews. And is he your king? Is he your king? You know, in some respects, I feel sorry for those Roman soldiers that day because they truly were ignorant. They really were ignorant. But you know what? Nobody in this room, because we have the Word of God, in 2019, none of us are ignorant. We don't have that crutch this morning. We don't, hey, we can't claim, we cannot claim ignorance. I just didn't know. No, no, we know. <laughs> hey, we mentally know who Jesus is. We mentally know in our minds that 2,000 years ago, this week begins that week that culminates in the resurrection. We understand that it was sometime during this week that Judas Iscariot placed the kiss of betrayal on the cheek of the master. We understand that Jesus was taken and that he was falsely accused. And we understand that he was delivered to Pilate and then to Herod and back to Pilate. And then Pilate tried to wash his hands and said, I find no fault in this man. See, look, you look to it. I'm not going to, uh, you, know, you, you do what you want to with him and I'll allow you to do it under my jurisdiction. But I know he's an innocent man. And they took him and they beat him beyond recognition and they hung him on a cross and they buried him. And three days later, he rose again from the grave. We're not ignorant. We know it here. Have we received it here? Have we received it here? Is it your king this morning? Hey, is it your savior this morning? 
If you're here this morning, you may know all the stories about Jesus and the miracles. You may know all of the, you, you may be familiar with John 3.16. You may be familiar with the cross. You may be familiar with the empty tomb. But let me ask you a question. Your mental familiarity with it does not mean you're saved. Because there has to come a time where you understand that you're a sinner, you understand that you're under the condemnation of your sins, and you receive Jesus Christ as your only hope for, for heaven. Your only hope. Those events that Jesus suffered on the cross was payment for my sins and your sins. And as much as Jesus loves you this morning, he gives you a choice. He gives you a decision to make. You can go your merry way this morning. <clears throat> you can try to work your way to heaven if you want to. But everything that Jesus went through on Calvary and his death, burial, and resurrection, he did all the work. He did all the work. The payment has been made. The great transaction is done. Hey, I am his and he is mine, not because I've done something good, but because he did everything necessary to save a poor, wretched sinner like me who could not save himself. And he's done the same thing for you. Now, the question is, is he your, is he your Savior? If he is your Savior, Christian, ask yourself the question, who calls the shots in your life? Is Jesus your king? None of us would be guilty of standing around and making a mockery of our Savior that day as the Roman soldiers were. But none of us are ignorant of the truth either. Can we honestly say, he's my king? He's my king. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed.